Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're discussing the law courts and how they influence the performance of a market economy. The UN Sustainable Development Goals recognise access to justice and accountable institutions as a prerequisite for economic prosperity. But what actually takes place behind the court's walls and how does it affect the economy? Peter Greigel from Washington and Lee University has conducted research on the functioning of courts, and he's here with us today. Peter, good governance, transparency, accountability, they're all major themes of the EBRD's work, and we believe that poor governance contributes to countries being stuck in transition. So what role do the courts have here? Courts are an absolutely essential part um, of an economist's landscape. Uh, They're there to secure property rights. Um, to enforce contracts and as such uh, contribute to sustainable commercial activity in large-scale anonymous markets uh, where reputation-based constraints to enforce contracts uh, lose their bite. Uh, So as such, uh, efficient courts uh, are very important for the economy. This has been a big issue uh, for us as an organization as we've looked into it. For many people uh, operating in many, for example, former communist countries where rule of law, you know, we often say it in our country strategies, the application of rule of law has been uneven. That's correct. Uh, and courts uh, certainly are very important and cr- rather crucial in, in, in enforcing rule of law and, and enforcing laws. In fact, research shows that merely laws on the books uh, do not generate Uh, legal effectiveness. We do need courts to enforce those laws, and we do need courts to enforce those laws in an impartial way and and sufficiently quickly. And that brings us to the question, really, I suppose, of how do we define then and measure how effective a justice system is? I think there's many different dimensions to um, effectiveness of a judicial system. Uh, The first and foremost is certainly judicial independence, that is independence from political interference. Uh, but then there's many other dimensions, uh, including accessibility, so the ability that parties actually can use a court uh, at a sufficiently low cost to, let's say, resolve a dispute. And finally, it's, it's, it's very important that courts are able to resolve disputes and resolve them in a timely manner. Uh, and in particular, um, this timely resolution of, of, of claims uh, has been an issue in, in lots of jurisdictions across the world, not just in the, let's say, uh, EBRD countries. Um, and one way we measure that is simply by, you know, um, total volume of, of case resolutions uh, that courts can produce, uh, so to speak, uh, in, a given, in a given time period. Uh, now, of course, that's a purely quantitative mm. measure. Of, yes, of, it doesn't say much about the quality of justice necessarily. That's, that's absolutely the case, um, but it's very frequently the amount of, of, of cases that courts dispose is very frequent, frequently um, a crucial policy objective uh, in environments where, where backlogs are a very mm. serious problem. And as such, it, it's reasonable to first focus, um, let's say, on speed and quantity, mm. uh, and at the same time then ask if that might have an effect well, on the quality. Well, I was going to ask you, so what, what does that mean about the trade-off between quality and quantity in that case? Yeah, that's, of course, the crucial trade-off, right? And, and uh, in some of the research that my co-authors and I have conducted, uh, we've actually found that uh, it's not necessarily, if at all, 
the case that, let's say, courts and judges that are on average more productive, let's say, resolve more cases, uh, that we see those courts and judges um, make worse decisions mm. as measured, for example, by the number of, of overturned cases. Uh, so the evidence on that quantity quality trade-off in courts, uh, I would say, uh, is 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 rather mixed. That's, that's quite uh, interesting because you'd expect it to be intuitive, and clearly it's not necessarily intuitive that trade-off. So, it yeah. it is not, and that's where the value of conducting empirical mm. research mm. Uh, comes in. That and many other places. Now, in contrast to the popular beliefs, not all court cases, as we know, are resolved through trials. We think about courts, and we often think of trials. Uh, what are some of the other ways, though, that uh, conflicts can be resolved? Uh, what other sort of resolution procedures, and what do you think really work? Well, I think once a case comes to the court, um, trials are actually quite rare. I think in the, in, in, in the U.S. data, uh, you know, the share of, 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 of trials is, you know, according to some estimates, no more than 5% in the context of civil cases. Uh, what I found, for example, in, in, this, in the post-socialist region is that the share of trials is still a little bit higher. Mm. Uh, of course, that's also a different legal system that we're talking about here, civil law-based. Um, but very frequently, what happens with cases when they arrive at court is, uh, you know, they might get abandoned. Mm. Uh, they might get dismissed for, on, on procedural grounds. Um, and, and lots of in-court settlements take place as well. Um, it's sort of hard to say which of these methods would be the most effective one in, in absolute terms, I would say. Um, but settlements, of course, are faster. Uh, and as such, they save resources uh, for the courts. Uh, and very frequently, we try to encourage settlements to, to filter out weak cases uh, from, from the court system because that saves resources for the litigation that does have to occur uh, through trials. Um, but we don't want courts to push parties mm. uh, into settlements uh, just because the resources at courses are scarce. Because trials do have a role, and as some legal experts would, would argue, for example, they sort of bring the light into that landscape of, of social interaction uh, that would otherwise remain hidden. Um, when a case settles, we don't really know most of the times mm. uh, how and what happened and, and what the terms of settlements were. Yes, quite often. Now, here at the EBRD, we promote often uh, alternative dispute resolution mechanisms, uh, especially commercial mediation as a way of sorting out uh, disputes. So what do you think are the upsides of that? I think the cost savings. Uh, cost savings because it allows the courts to, to, to save the resources uh, and that those resources are then used on cases uh, that in the end do need to go through trial because after all mediation is voluntary uh, and, and, and uh, parties can still continue with, uh, with trial-based resolution if necessary. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help change people's lives. And you can contact us, of course, at EBRD on Twitter and on Facebook with the hashtag Pocket Economics. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today, we're discussing the relationships between the courts and the economy with our guest, Peter Grajel. And Peter, your research, uh, a lot of it, has focused on countries such as Slovenia, Bulgaria, the, the countries that we operate in. Do you have a good idea of what's happening across the EBRD regions? Uh, do you have any impressions you want to share with us? You talked a little bit about the, as you put it, post-socialist space. Yeah, um, obviously resources uh, in this region in general are still, uh, are still comparatively scarce. Mm. Uh, so as a result, one of the questions that I was interested in is to understand to what extent court resources, and in particular judicial staffing, because mm. judges are the main and the most expensive resource for the courts, matter for 
the production of output in these courts, in other words, for the volume of case dispositions. Um, Because after all, a typical policy prescription would be to say, well, if we want to speed up justice, and if we want to increase the amount of work that's done in these courts, let's just give them more Mm. resources. So in theory, that's sort of a simple matter. You know, more judges should all else equal resolve more cases. Uh, But it turns out that the story is not quite as simple in the data. Uh, What we actually find is that it's not judicial staffing, the number of judges, uh, that seems to be the main driver or, or the main driver of, 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 of case dispositions in courts. It's actually demand for court services. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, courts will respond to higher demand. But if we just give them more resources, um, very frequently what can happen is that the existing judges will adjust their work effort. Uh, and as a result, we might spend a lot of money in these types of policy interventions. But So there's uh, a productivity fall amongst the judges, basically. Exactly. Okay. They will adjust it endogenously on their own, and that will frequently happen when you know, the on-the-job monitoring mechanisms are not particularly strong, uh, when the incentives are not sufficiently high-powered, judge-level incentives, uh, and we can get th- these sort of surprising results, I would say. If you're a judge, by the way, you can let us know what you think on our social media. Uh, According to our latest Life in Transition report, corruption levels, uh, we've noticed and we monitor this quite carefully, you know, they remain relatively high across our countries, uh, especially in the former communist uh, world. What's the role of courts in fighting corruption? Well, unfortunately, lots of corruption corruption actually happens in courts, <laughs> uh, right? So, um, I mean, what courts certainly can do is is um, be on the lookout uh, for situations where where corrupt practices arise, uh, and in courts in courts themselves, what we have to do is sort of try to make sure that judges have we can never totally remove them, but at least have. Uh, the minimum possible incentives uh, to engage in corruption. Now, some people will argue uh, you can achieve that by uh, providing them with, you know, sufficiently high salaries and compensation. Mm. I'm not fully sure uh, that that's necessarily a good argument. And, and, you know, the economics literature has shown that and has argued that way, uh, because if I am paid a higher salary... (laughs) What that probably means is that if you want to bribe me, you pay uh, a higher bribe. you'll have <laughs> right. to pay a higher bribe, yeah. right? Because actually what you want is not about salaries. You want it to be about morals, ethics, don't you, uh, amongst the judiciary? That's yeah. correct, right? Yeah. And and I know that, you know, uh, various initiatives, both both probably the ones started by EBRD, have emphasized uh, the sort of professionalism and, and, and the moral aspects in, in judicial training, uh, which is, I think, where... Um, probably one of the key possibilities for for alleviating corruption in courts actually are. Mm. I mean, you mentioned there that we're heavily engaged in focusing on um, pursuing judicial training. We think that's important in the EBRD. Do do you think we and other multilateral development banks can do more in other areas to to actually influence what goes on, uh, to improve the the quality of what's happening behind the court walls? Um, I think it's really hard to try to sort of intervene in courts just because of that idea that judicial independence, right, is, is the cornerstone. It's probably only in the training area, I guess. That, that profession, that's right. Mm-hmm. So it's in, it's in providing, you know, judges with training in, let's say, for example, helping courts um, structure uh, their adjudication and case resolution in a way uh, that becomes more effective, for example, by you know, training judges in, 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 in how to adjudicate commercial matters, uh, in how to adjudicate competition policy law matters. Uh, and and in, all the, in all those areas of law where very specific and special expertise is needed, 
and where it's unlikely the judges that were trained, you know, mm. before 1990 mm. uh, in the EBRD region would actually possess that expertise today. I think that's where um, uh, EBRD has done a fantastic job. And what about civil society organizations briefly? Do you think there's something they can do in this sphere? Yeah, civil society um, plays a very interesting role. So I don't think that the civil society per se can, let's say, um, improve the functioning of the judiciary, except if it's from some NGO-based training programs. I certainly see a role there. Uh, but a civil society and the judiciary in many ways uh, play complementary or even substitutable roles uh, in the way that they would influence, let's say, the reform process mm. uh, that takes place in, in various countries. Um, Judicial review is one of those fundamental aspects of or, or functions that the judiciary is supposed to perform to, to evaluate new legislation uh, that's passed in different countries. And what that effectively means is that, you know, we, we respect the due process of law uh, and that we respect the fact that uh, new legislation cannot just be passed overnight. Uh, if that were the case, then the political arena and the reform process gets dominated by, you know, self-interested politicians, uh, aggressive lobbies, and that's where the judiciary is supposed to sort of put a break uh, on 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 that process. Civil society can do something similar. Uh, it can open up the process of 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 uh, of debate. It can open up the process of reform, and through that way, change the incentives of of interest groups of, of specialized lobbies um, for submitting specific proposals to politicians and therefore influence uh, the outcome of, of the reform process. And I've done some work with Peter Morell on that uh, um, in, in, in the past. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. And if you're interested in finding out more, you can read Peter Greigel's research and our work on good governance and legal reform at ebrd.com. Meanwhile, share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud at ebrd.com slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember, the reviewing and rating Pocket Economics, well, that helps others to find it. So please do it. Until next time.